Welcome to episode 241 of Catching Foxes. I think this is the most important episode we've recorded in a long time. I had to pull in a quote from Thanos, Bishop Barron, and others. We also have four sponsors. We got Policy Genius. We got CatholicSocial.media. We got Vagabond Missions. And welcoming a new advertiser to our show, FaithfulCounseling.com slash Foxes. You'll hear more about them later. But I really do think this is the most important episode we've had in a long time. And something that really ticks me off about Luke is he intuits theology and philosophy that I spent years reading and researching. He just daydreams after reading like six pages in Von Balthazar, and all of a sudden he's practically reinventing Rene Girard's mimetic theory of violence and the scapegoat mechanism. It really angers me. Please check out the show notes. They are going to have a ton of links if you want to go and listen and learn more. I would encourage you, if you don't listen to anything else, go and listen to Bishop Barron on Rene Girard's mimetic theory or scapegoat theory, whatever. The link is in the show notes. God bless you all. Enjoy. Oh, and just to let you know, for the first, like, 40 minutes, it's Goofy Talk Fun Time. And, yes, even reviewing some of the Marvel stuff. But then after that, buckle up, baby birds. Mama's going to feed you. One episodes in. Oh, you piece of shit. I guess this is the last episode. Well, we had a good run. Here's who sucks. <laughs> Matthew <laughs> Kelly. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. The guy who yelled at the woman on, inst- on his live feed. Um, that was rough. You could tell he was having a very bad day. You could tell he was having yeah, a very but, bad day. Yeah, yeah, no. You're but, probably his speaker friend. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know him. But I will say this. Uh, that man cracked like an egg. That man cracked. There is no work. There is no work. <laughs> like, I work harder than you. Oh, it's priest activism. <laughs> yeah, that's what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that to me, that was emblematic of what we talked about. Uh, pig- piggybacking off of the Catholic stuff you should know episode where it's like if diocesan priests define themselves by the worky work that they do, what happens when they can't do that? And it's like, oh, you better bone up in your prayer life or you're going to scream on Twitter or Instagram. Well, and I get it. I get that it's scary. I get that it's hard. But, like, this is like this is what it's like for most people who don't have jobs where they have guaranteed income. And for, you know, like indefinitely. Like, huh? Indefinitely guaranteed income. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is so, I mean, I, I just, I don't have a lot of sympathy for, for that. I know it's scary and, and yeah. I know it's tough. But, you know, like, there are people who have it much, much worse. There are people who can't pay their rent right now. There are people who can't afford to pay their mortgage. You know, like I've I've got a buddy who's a one of the best bartenders here in Cincinnati, and his wife, I believe, is a um, hairdresser. And you know, and I'm sure this has been very hard on them. Oh my goodness! Yeah, those are the people that those are the people that like I worry about. I'm like, you know, this is people who do like real blue collar, like good people doing good stuff. And, like, not a person who's like, I can't talk in front of thousands, man. I'm like, okay. Like, I get it. I, I get it. I get, I, I get it. It's your source of income. Like, that's a different, like, especially if you're a layperson. I get Nobody it. I, I, that's totally different. The trouble <laughs> no, I've no, but, but, like, it's different for you, like, a person who, like, you know, this is a big deal. And, like, we're trying to do some stuff. That, that <laughs> it's different for you, a person without color. Uh, to- <laughs> that's what it sounded like you were going to say. <laughs> No, but like, like you're a like you know you have a like. I have five you, other people dependent. You have five on me. other people that yeah, like that's totally different than. I don't know. I just yeah, um, yeah no, I just I the know. whole thing. 
It just like I was like, oh, this doesn't surprise me that I'm seeing this with the little I've seen of you. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> That's so funny. I don't I don't know anything about the dude, but uh, I, I'll, all I know is from the comments after that was this is par for the course. It's not the first time, and I was like, ah. That's unfortunate. And, and, and that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I, like, continue to pray for him. Can I tell you about the th- an experience I had during prayer that made me feel like shit? Oh, gosh. Pretty much everything you have during prayer should make you feel like shit. If God's being no, just, fair. what was it? <laughs> uh, you just love having a camera on you during this, don't you? No, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable <laughs> because the screen is off here to my lefty left, and this is here, and my microphone is blocking it. And I'm like, I know it's podcast first, but... It would be annoying if I tuned in and this microphone was blocking everything. So, anywho, what, what, uh, no, there we go. Look at that. Look at all my books. Also, mad. I just want to um, thank you again. Mad, mad uh, props to Jason for, yeah. uh, helping us out. Jason, I realize I just time. moved the camera and I probably ruined your angles for the screen. Sorry. I'm right in the middle now. I love you. He's always here on time and we're always f- 15 to 20 minutes late. <laughs> Pure catching foxes style. Yeah, nah, we'll be there. So what? What? What happened in prayer? What happened to your face in prayer? Oh, so okay. So me and Aaron on Divine Mercy Sunday. I've which heard was of it. Yesterday, I've heard of it. Holy crap! Um, yeah. uh, we prayed a Divine Mercy Chaplet. That was wonderful. I forgot how much I love praying that. And then, but before that, we did we did um, we did like Lexio with the gospel, and I just realized how much I miss everything. Yeah, all the you, like all I, the ministry stuff that you used to do. Oh no! Just everything. Like I miss like being at church. I miss holy hours. I miss uh, you know. I need to. I could definitely have a better prayer life, which I think is was really starting to you know kind of. That's what it was. I'm showing was that you know like I need to take more time to enter into prayer on like a deeper level during this. I feel like I've really missed the Lord. Like, I, I just like I just miss the words of Jesus and um and hearing them and contemplating them. So I think I need, I've been doing a lot, a lot of Lexio. Sorry, that's, that's not true at all. <laughs> Let me revise that one that's a little bit less <laughs> light. Got... Are you dying? No, I'm joking on the spit. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> he turns just in time to cough directly into the camera. Oh, that's why I love oh you, Luke. Oh my gosh. No, you I, so it. I was, was praying, I pray a lot with the liturgy of the hours and I, yeah. I think I need to incorporate more like Lexio. They just miss the words of Jesus. I think I need to do more contentful prayer to our Lord. It just um, how do you do the liturgy of the it, hours for it yourself? Hurt. I typically do the office of readings. Okay, every day. I, I'm going to tell you from the limited time. I love it. The doing the quarantine has I, I've dove into the liturgy of the hours. I love it. Morning and evening prayer, and sometimes night prayer. So that that's my extent. Um, right. So it's not like I'm doing it all the things I'm not doing the office of readings. I'm not doing all that stuff, but the little that I've done, especially like the set morning prayers and how tight in it is with the Easter octave and season and stuff. I am shocked at how much scripture and how absolutely relevant all of these scri- like if you know any theology reading these psalms at this time of day is so powerful and this is going to sound weird but like how do priests not know the bible better if they're supposed to be doing this every day because they're not doing it every day how- well no and i can also see i no no i could also right? we are not being nice to priests um, well, i uh no, I mean, how do they like I, could, I like reading the Psalms of just morning prayer alone? I and I do the what's it called the invitatory or the in, invitatory the 
inventory or whatever. <laughs> the inventory. Um, no, the the I am like I love it. Like I love it, right? And and reading all of those things, and it's just like even the quotes from the the church fathers that they put in at the top, like uh, uh, Christ opened the gate to heaven through the humanity that he assumed. Um, you know, just things like that. Like there, there's so much richness there that I I'm just I'm I'm at a loss for words why people are struggling with homilies and stuff. There's so much scripture. That is prayed daily. Like the morning prayer doesn't change all that much, especially if you do the invitiatory or whatever. Yeah, it um, it is the hidden gem of the, yes. the Catholic Church. I used to be it, so it bored is, by it. It's wonderful. I oh, I so see, bored. I think for me, it was something. I for whatever reason, it's always just been something that I just adore. I have just from the first time I, I ever did it. I remember just, I, it was it was with the servants of Christ of um. Christ Jesus out, in, heard out in Denver, Colorado, who started their own pod podcast. That word said, if if you want to hear a podcast by some guys in Andy G that um, won't make you feel like you, you um, need to go to confession, listen to this. Uh, so, yeah. What podcast Thanks. is it? I didn't Thanks know they had one. Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's pretty good. I only listened to the first, to the first episode, but I did, I did, I did give words some tips. He's, he's the host of it. Although he goes by Edward, which is so annoying. Uh, what is uh, it? Okay. So it's called the servants, a uh, podcast for the servants of Christ Jesus. Oh my god, Very original. Gosh. But, uh, it's, it's actually pretty cool. It's, um, Played at about like I'm um, one and a half speed because they all talk oh, like this. We are very spiritual. I'm, I'm very happy we to be here. I have a good prayer spiritual. life. Every time I hang out with um Luke, he always thinks, "How come I haven't aged?" <laughs> um, he looks so. Are you talking about Father, Father Paul? Um, yeah, Father Paul looks exactly yeah. the same as he did in 2002. A little weird. A little weird. <laughs> yeah, they um, were a part of these crazy experiments in longevity. And uh, he just, he was the only one that didn't mutate into a, you know, third arm. So uh, good on you, Father Paul. Or Lieutenant Lieutenant Father Paul. He's a military Lieutenant Father Paul. I'm in the Army now. (laughs) He's in the the Navy, I think. I'm in the the Navy. He had to do boot camp and everything. He was telling me stories. It was pretty good. I bet you he's he's so better than us in every way. Yeah. Yeah. Except for a sense of uh, okay. humor, we got you beat there, Father Paul. <laughs> but every now and again, he's oh, got so he, like because he's so dry and just like inverted. Yeah, uh, that uh, when he does hit, he 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 cuts hard. <laughs> he he pulls his punches, but when he does, uh, he knocks you out. Oh, you it. fight dirty, Janet Janet Amorino. Then how comes my conscience is so clean? <laughs> <laughs> We finish each other's uh, sentences. Um, so, everyone, this is what happens when we don't have any topics. What are you talking <laughs> we about? We just try to mind it. We just mind stuff, and then we see uh, we see where it's going to go. Hey, Gilmore, do you know what's scary as hell? Uh... Yes, that and life. And with life, I think, honestly, guys, we talk a lot about being adult. And I think one of the first things in life when you are trying to be an actual adult that you're going to want to do is get life insurance. Wouldn't you agree with me? Or are you stupid? <laughs> Can people tell we're doing an ad for policygenius.com? <laughs> Listen, Luke, look, 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 before we start talking about life and being stupid, there are a lot of things in my past that I'm looking back on that I regret. Number one, I regret not going to Austria with you. I regret how my first relationship at Franciscan ended. 
Uh, and then the fact that you tried to date her at the same time as our friend Pat Magni. <laughs> I regret no, those. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Policy Genius makes finding the right on life insurance like a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top in top insurers, say that with a speech impediment, to find your best price. You could say $1,500 or more a year. If you're a youth minister, you need to do this right now. That is like a whole month's salary yes. uh, a year while using Policy on the Genius to compare on life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape for free. All you do is you take a picture of your current documents and they match it up it's amazing it's amazing um we're about to have a child so that terrifies me <laughs> so i'm checking out different kinds different kinds of home life insurance and while i was actually on there on my website we can also do like insurance for pets and stuff and i was like holy crap that could have saved me a ton of money when my dog's back two legs stopped working for two months and it's not just life insurance or pet insurance it's also home auto and disability there's a lot of stuff so even if you look back on your days of wearing triple denim and you feel nothing but regret you will never have to be distressed about life insurance with policy genius in just a few minutes you can find your best price and apply at policygenius.com we all get things wrong from time to time at least we can get a life insurance right with policy genius you know, policy genius <laughs> for sponsoring this, this episode <laughs> of catching foxes i'm drinking wine i've been outside a lot today so that was fun what'd you do what'd you do update on the quarantine sanity did you go for a walk did you go for a walk? Take your dog. I did. I walked to my high school and back. Then I then I um, saw my buddy on Nick. So we talked for a bit. Then I walked back, and I was like, "I live back at home. It's weird." <laughs> and uh, oh, actually, I ran into a guy that. I, I, that oh, um, and let's also do an update within an update. Um, here's a quick like Luke. Uh, quick, um, Luke goes back to his hometown update. I love these. These are my favorite. So I, I ran into a friend from uh, from like high school. At the parking lot of the store, as you do, and we're gonna hang out um, once all this is over with. And I'm, I'm very pumped, and, and that'll be great. Any, any more details? Oh, uh, we lived in Eureka, California, at the same time. Wait, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Wow, we found out that we were that we overlapped by about two years there, and I, and I don't know if this is a real or not, but I had one of those moments where I'm like, I think I remember, like. I think I remember being at a bar and going, that looks like Paul, but that can't be. There's no way he would be here. That looks like Paul, but it can't be. Paul's dead. I killed him. <laughs> yeah. Wild times of dating. Rick killed a guy. <laughs> you might want to lay low, Luke. Um, no, what was the thing that I, I totally interrupted you when we started going off the Liturgy of the Hours? What was the thing that you were saying that uh, hit you hard As in prayer? we do. Yeah, you were telling me that you started telling the story like the Lord is kicking your butt in prayer. And then you mentioned, uh, yeah, and, and then I explained. I, I basically said I need to pray more, like with the gospels. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, well, I didn't, I didn't I, seem I, as dramatic. I, just, I, as you I, I need it. to do lexio. Okay. I need to, well, no, I just I think I miss hearing the like. I need to spend more contemplative in dialogue with Christ as opposed to just praying the. Um, and I like I really like the other the hours because it does um, it does um, lead me into contemplation. But I w- I think I need to do more dialoguing with. Jesus, okay, and, and especially going into the Gospels, p- praying Lexio, just kind of like, just like I'm diving and like, yeah. uh, and just I'm um, bathing into God's Word, especially the Gospels. Scrooge, Scrooge McDuckin it in the Gospels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my number one dime <laughs> of backstroke. Are you doing? Are you doing any spiritual reading? Are you doing any of that right now? 
Um, no, I, I, I have, I haven't done a really good job of that in my thirties. <laughs> in my, in my twenties, tons of it, tons of it. Yeah. Just not. I mean, I've, I've. Uh, okay, so that's not hundred percent true. I've read a lot of Balthasar and a lot of Ratzinger, but it's been as needed. But is that spiritual reading or theological reading? Uh, with them, it's, I, I mean, I would say, oh, au contraire, good, good, sir. Uh, I believe that I believe that Ratzinger would say that if you are doing theology, it's both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you're not doing ha! theology. You're reading theology. That's a totally different thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have a master's degree in theology. Uh, so Taylor Marshall, huh? <laughs> yeah, what an asshole! <laughs> did you did you read the David Armstrong blow by blow uh, summary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Golly, that, that does not make Taylor Marshall look like a good human person in any way, shape, or form. We, I don't like yeah, either well, of them. I don't like all three of them. I don't like, and I've listened, I, I own a Taylor Marshall book. I watched TNT a handful of times. I was repulsed every single time. When Timothy Gordon was on Mafrad's show, I thought, wow, I'm so happy. I don't like this person. I might love him <laughs> in the Lord. But uh, <laughs> Timothy Gordon, like making jokes about fat women and all this stuff, like he's a horrific human being sometimes. But when it comes down to the, when two rad trad mini popes slug it out on Twitter, Timothy Gordon, it is wonderful. Def- yeah. He definitely came out on top of that one. It's the most bummed out I've ever been that that Taylor Marshall blocked me on both Twitter <laughs> accounts, both the podcast and my personal one. <laughs> So frustrating. I'm a little annoyed. He didn't block me, even though I screenshotted a picture of Hansers von Balthasar's Dare We Hope and sent it to him saying, thank you for recommending this book. It's awesome. And he's like, well, I didn't really recommend it, but whatever gets you reading theology. And I'm like, but you think this is bad <laughs> theology? That and you're like, you asshole, I have a master's. A master's. I am a master. That's why my bedroom's called a master bedroom, Luke. <laughs> I stayed over the summer to learn Greek. I mean, kind of. I didn't do so well in it, but I stayed over the summer to get that. Tone, arton, anthropone. I don't know what that means, but something. Do you even have a master's in theology if you didn't spend a, a whole summer out at Franciscan? Probably not. Probably not. That's probably made up. If your life, ex- if your life expectancy hasn't gone down by a good five years because of your theological studies, did you even do it? <laughs> I was talking with this guy, and he's like, uh, do master's in theology degrees even count if it's not an STD in Rome? And I was like, yeah, I bet you got an STD in Rome. Oh, probably the clap, and we just high-fived each other. Like, this is what it sounds like when you pee now. Ew, what are you doing? What is that? I'm clapping my hands. That's a clap. They're like, I don't know. It's a horrible joke. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to cr- create joke. the, what are you illustrating is making that noise. I don't know. It's, it's in sound that happens when he pees. <laughs> and when doves cry. <laughs> Oh man, we have nothing. We, we have, have nothing. absolutely. We have absolutely. So what we typically do right now, while this is happening, everyone, is we take a break. But we can't do that because right of the now. damn live stream. <laughs> Actually, I, I do have a topic, but I do want more booze. Uh, what what's the Luke to do? Uh, just do the topic, and we'll be done in thirty five minutes, and can go on to go to bed, huh? No, it's, that's a that's a shitty episode. Nah, nah, it's great. 
No, we're not recording for an hour and calling that a day. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely should. Vagabond Missions has been serving teenagers in the inner city for years. Both Luke and I are personal friends with many people in the leadership positions of Vagabond Missions, and we absolutely love this ministry. If you have ever thought about giving up a year of your life in service to the poor, this is the place where you can go. Why? More than anything else, they invest in the training of their missionaries. They spend a lot of time equipping you with monthly spiritual direction, retreats, all sorts of stuff to equip you to be in the inner city and to bring the light of the gospel. This is social justice meets the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't ignore the one for the sake of the other. So if you've ever had a stirring in your heart to consider giving a year of your life to serve the poor, you can find out more information at vagabondmissions.com slash apply. Vagabond Missions is Christ-centered, driven to mission, and are creators of community. And in an age of isolation, neglect, and brokenness, community rooted in Christ, it's what sustains hope in the midst of tribulation. I want to thank Vagabond Missions for supporting this show. Check them out today at vagabondmissions.com slash apply. What's your topic? Give me your topic. My, I have a topic. I came with a topic. No, you But didn't. I thought that we were just, uh, you know, kind of like easing our way into this stuff. I have a follow-up on Marvel movies that I wanted to say. Uh, I have three Did comments. Did you do my 35-point thing? Uh, no. The number one. Yeah, I read that. Uh, number one, Captain Marvel is just as boring as I remember. Not fun at all. Uh, let me think here. What was the other one? Uh, Ant-Man and Wasp. Was fun, but who cares? And then Endgame uh, and Infinity War. So we're halfway through Endgame. Um, Infinity War, I think, was on Monday. I think that's how it worked itself out last week. Uh, Tony Stark hopped on the alien spaceship to die. He did not think he would come back home. Because when he saw Spider-Man, he said, what, what are you doing here, kid? Right? He's freaking out. And he goes... This is a one-way trip. This is a one-way ticket, kid. Like, when he got on board that, and that's when I was like, oh, here's this is where Tony's arc is truly complete. Not just when he, you know, does the snap at the end, but at this moment, because he's not trying to come up with a way around everything. He's, he's laying down on the wires so the other man will live. I like that. I think that he's already there yeah that's what i'm saying in the very beginning but I, he's War. been there since the avengers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i mean i i still think i still think there was room to grow no 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 i i think so too no i i, I i'm not saying that but i think that well no i think you're right there isn't anything on left but for him to die yeah you know like because he um i don't think he makes like a choice i, I think he like from Avengers onward, if he had the chance that it were it was either his death or having to save others, he would choose his death. Yeah, and that's when he it, it, that's when it finally happens. Yeah, right. Yeah, no? I think so. I think that's that's yeah. that's that was a big thing. So, yeah, I, Marvel Captain Marvel. I watched it and I was like, I hate it less than when I originally hated it, but it's still like a one out of five for me. It's. If you watch it for it's like it's the I mean you can say that all day. No, no, no. It's it's even worse. It's a movie that tries to. Yeah, it's a movie that pretends to have plot for the sake of girl power. 
And those types of movies are the most frustrating because you can like align yourself with a theme, but it have such terrible plot. But you'll like it's like what people do when. Christian movies. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days. Like you give certain movies a pass because you agree with certain premises that they contain or themes, if you want to say it. But there comes a point where the themes are so, uh, I mean, it's a form, a medium, the medium itself has to have a good and compelling plot. Like you can forgive hokey effects if the plot and characters are really good, if you get the plot and characters wrong, if you get the acting and the writing wrong, you can't like a lot of people will extend more grace to things that they kind of align with morally or thematically. But I'm watching that movie and it's like they keep telling her to get control of her emotions, but she was never really I mean, she was almost unemotional the whole movie. And, like, all of these things that they just keep doing, like, it made no sense. Well, that's because Brie Larson's a terrible actress. Oh, but she was, I like Brie Larson. I, I thought, n- no, personally, like, her fan. interviews, not a her fan. interview stuff, she's so funny before all the stuff. And then she decided to be a one-woman banner carrier. And I was like, she became super flat. Like, who cares, you know? I Okay, so plot always comes first. Like, the themes should come out of the plot. Like, plot always comes, because there are times, because like, you can even ha- like have a movie that, you know, has a couple, like, you can't, I mean, you can say that I want to run a movie that is, you know, about family. But you can't force that. It has to, like, there are times when a story can kind of change its theme because the plot has to change because you see how these, you know, because, like, when you start to understand who these characters are, what, what, like, uh, like, and what these characters do, that can change, the, that can change uh, what the theme is, but if it, like, um, fits the plot and the, and the and the plot then makes some sense, it's, there's this kind of weird, like, unbalance between that when you're trying to, not a balance, there's a very interesting relationship. Um, with that, and there are times when, like, I, th- I think that that the themes can be heavy handed, and it can still be like a really good movie. And there are yeah, times. Yeah, but I don't when think it was even close. Well, I think so. I um I don't remember. It's been a while since I watched it. It's been a, a couple. Like, of here's weeks. some great. Well, here's here's a great thematic element that like her and her past struggles against all the men in her life who have always said, uh, you know. You'll never be good enough. Stay down. All that stuff. And she keeps getting back up. One of the things that could have been done, there was one throwaway line that when I heard it, I said, we should have done that. Is the um, Her best friend character says, uh, you never had much of a family. You you never got along with your parents. So my family became your family. And I was like, they, they show two clips of her dad yelling at her all over the go-kart accident. And you were just like, that could have been a cool backstory. That could have been something used. That could have been the emotionally driven content. The problem is they talk about emotion more than they evoke emotion over and over and over again. And then um, the other thematic thing was like, why do I already know all the stuff about her? I want to find out. I think it'd be a much more interesting story to find out with her instead of knowing, oh, the Creed changed her memories and you're just waiting for her to realize that. Right? Like, you know the whole time. And it's literally half the movie until she realizes it. And then you're like, okay, now you, you have this sense of, like, the opening act dragging on for a whole hour because of that that plot device. And uh, I'm just, you know, I, I don't know. There were just elements of it where I thought it was very 
they tried to show how she struggled her whole life against people telling her no, but she always got back up. Yeah. So okay, here's so there's the plot sucked at presenting it. Yeah. What I not what I liked about it, but like this, this is what I'm watching in order to make it bearable. Let me put it that way. <laughs> this is what I find First, about it: a whiskey drink, then yeah. a vodka drink, then a, a lager drink. drink. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then I want to have a song to remind me of the, of the good time, and then a song to remind me of the best times, and of course, it needs to be set in the '90s. So all of the feminism stuff is it hurts it. Way more yeah. than it, because I, I yeah. think it could have naturally come out and been fine. Yeah, you know, I, I think that was by feminine stuff. You mean in the movie or the stuff that surrounded it? Like both, both. Yeah, both. okay. I think yeah. that I think my hunch is that this is like two or three stories kind of meshed into one. Yeah, because yeah. I think what they started to see was, oh wow, if we really allow these films. To be have like overt themes to like there's a change after like Civil War where they allow the directors to put their own spin on them and to really explore heavy stuff. And my hunch is this film was hurt because of that because they probably already had plans like oh we need this to be our like um, women's power. Thing. We need this to be a giant Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah. You know, stand with her. I mean, the advertising was literally. Uh, what, what was it like? Stand with a stand with her that became hero or something. Because like, because like, you don't ever see this. Is, like, this is why I think this film is interesting. You don't really ever see her be. Like, you don't feel her being oppressed. Right. Ever. Ever. Now, you see it in these little bits here and there. Like, the, the worst part of the film, and it could be awesome. Like, I see how it could be cool, but it's because it's, it's not the way that it looks or even what they're trying to say. But the emotional beats don't hit is when it shows her throughout different points of her life, and she's yeah. staring into the camera. And it's like, I don't know what's going on at the go-kart thing. I don't know what's going I mean, I have a vague idea, but I don't know... You, there's no emotional attachment to any of this. She's a female driver. Yeah, and it's like no. that's not enough. Like, and what yeah. is? There's been plenty yeah. of other movies that have that have said what you're trying to say way better. What I thought was interesting, yeah. I thought I don't agree with you completely about the control your emotion part because that she is in a very, um. Like she screams at them in the beginning. There's a few times where she does um, lose her cool, but she's not like flying off the handle. Or anything yeah, like that. And to that. me, to someone but, well, who let me let me just finish every, this okay. really, really quick. No, no, I I I really appreciate where you're going. I just want to unfinish this thought while 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 I am on a roll. I think there was um this like like there was this theme here of look like the way things are on the surface aren't how they are underneath, and you need to dig deep to find the stuff that's deep within you. So you have the scroll. They're they're actually the good guys in this story, and the people that she thought were 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 good, the Cree, they're they're the bad guys. But she's got to go deep to get there, and she has to go deep within her own heart and her like own memories, her own life to find out who and what she is. But I think that gets like suffocated by all of the other all of the other stuff, by the poor story. Yeah, done. and I think that's interesting. This whole idea of trying to dig deep: who am I? Like, what am I? Um, and understanding that you can't just take things on the surface. You've got to go a little bit um, deeper. You have to truly understand 
like things might aren't, aren't always on what they appear to be. Because the, so, the, the, the scroll yeah. stuff works. I think that works really well in that film. Okay, I'm done. Except, Sorry. For, the Aust- except for the Australian accent that threw me. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Emotional hook. Hey, guys. Uh, here's a- <laughs> you, you always know Luke is being serious or trying to be whenever he says, hey, guys. In, like, that downbeat, that da- hey, guys, hey, guys, hey. It's like hey. Danny Tanner on, on uh, <laughs> Full House. It's time to talk about your emotional and mental health. And that's actually what we want to do today, people. FaithfulCounseling.com slash foxes. Faithful Counseling is a team of licensed Christian counselors who share your faith and who want to help you through your problems. You can begin a conversation when you are ready, get this, by text or phone or even secure video conferencing from the comfort of your own home. You have faithful counselors who share your values and who are professionals with experience to help you process your issues. I just want to add, I've, I've actually had some experience going to counseling over the interwebs, and it's been fantastic. So I cannot recommend this enough, especially um, right now, going to some type of like a Christian counselor to talk about that. And here's a great opportunity to do that. Right. These are people who are going to combine biblical wisdom with clinical expertise in mental health. Okay. So they are professionals who are inviting God into the conversation. That is hugely important. This is not a crisis line, right? This is access to a thousand plus U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and it's available worldwide. And you can communicate via text, chat, phone, or video, and it's all included. And you can start communicating, this is huge, in under 24 hours. That's fantastic. And the important thing for everyone to realize is financial aid is available for those who qualify. And we're going to start you off by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash foxes make sure you go to that url so they know you came from us and you will get 10 percent off of your first month simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and you will get matched with a counselor you love that's faithfulcounseling.com slash foxes uh why don't you go ahead and repeat that on website for all of the baby boomers in the back faithfulcounseling.com slash foxes thanks to faithful counseling for sponsoring this show that was good that was good uh, I, I can I can follow you. I can follow you. I just thought the movie was so the the idea of carrying the weight of modern third wave wannabe feminism, it by actresses, you know, by this particular actress who started going on a huge tirade, and Disney as a whole who has done this huge shift to try to gather a female audience for its previously male-dominated consumer lines, especially Star Wars and Marvel, they wanted to bring on a whole female fan base. Awesome. You bring in female heroes that are strong, compelling heroes. But instead, they brought in strong feminism and hooked their hero onto that. And my hunch is that you could have some of some of the feminism come out as a theme in that because of the sheer nature of who she is. You, 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 yeah. you wouldn't even have to say anything. But just because of who she is and how and how she, how she lives her own life, I think it would come out as one of the themes of the movie that you could pick up from that. I just uh... secondary note: you ready for this? Yeah. The worst Marvel movie to watch with your kids, probably the top two, probably a tie. One, uh, Iron Man three, because human beings explode and belch out fire and people blow up and stuff. That's that's rough for kids. Uh, I never tried Thor 2 with the Dark Elves and the Berserker guy. I think that would just scare the kids to death. So we just skipped. It's the only one that we skipped. 
But then, uh, man, Endgame sucks for kids. I keep forgetting that. Captain uh, Captain America has a foul mouth the whole movie. So he's and my son Noah literally he'll hear me say like oh what the hell and he'll go language <laughs> like straight out of uh, what whatever that movie was what was that of uh, Age of Ultron yeah Age of Ultron language and then he just laughs to himself he's six years old making these jokes um, but Captain America has the foulest mouth and he's the one that my kids all love across the board including my wife a little bit too much. They all love it. And uh, d- to have him b- do that, th- my daughter at one point goes, why does he keep saying all these bad words? And I was like, it's trying to show you the despair of their culture and all this stuff. Like, everything is awful. And then he fought himself, and he looks, and he goes, yeah, I guess that is America's ass. And my daughter looked at me, and she goes, why did he say that? And I go, oh, because that's where America poops out of. Anywho. <laughs> because it's so, yeah, it's, that is, um, that's interesting to, to, to think about that in so let it Worse kids. with my kids. Yeah. Huh. Because, yeah, that is a weird, like, um, it's, I think it's supposed to show that he's just more, like, isn't it weird that we have to, to, to show a person is more grounded, they have to become worse? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, th- that crystallized for me during the whole Clinton scandal when the argument for him having an affair to, to defend him was, well, it just shows that the office of the president is only human. And I remember Dr. Hahn bringing this up years later, and he said, the thing that I kept hearing was, oh, it makes him human, it makes him human. And in a sense, it does, because, yeah, we put these people on a pedestal, and propaganda told us, don't you pedestal these people. But at the same time, the idea was... Uh, and, and we do belong to the community of sinners. However, sin dehumanizes us. And the constant theme of, like, you're no better than me is not like, yeah, he's just one of us. It's, yeah, he's as bad as us. Yeah. And I don't like that. There's no, it's the, a big part th- of our th- culture. Yeah, we, we are infatuated with the antihero because we think the gritty I, – I don't know if – I feel like that's like a zeitgeist thing, like – we we are infatuated the, with the bad guy, the bad guy who's just slightly less bad than the other bad guys. So we get the glory and revenge killing and all that stuff. The the dirty cop who kills, but in the name of justice, Batman. <laughs> he has one rule, Luke. He has one rule. He'll punch you in the mouth. He'll let a train collapse with you inside, but he will not directly kill you. What was the line that he says in Batman Begins? I won't ever kill you, but I'm not. That doesn't mean I have to save your life or something. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, yeah, it kind of does. Um, yeah. well, and you killed all of his friends when they started detonating the the black powder <laughs> stuff back in the back in the lodge well, in the mountains. When there's no, um, like, when there's no, like, there's no. Okay, so like, I um, when there's no point to anything, yeah, there isn't anything to strive for, right? So you're grasping at straws. Yeah, pretty much. And I, I think like like one thing that I think is very interesting about The Crown, I've only watched three episodes of it, but I've heard people. T- I think this is a quote from it. And it might. I don't know. I, I anyways, uh, or it, it could be a person from The Crown. Is that what you Yeah, saying? it could be a person talking about The Crown. This could have been um, like okay. Sarah when she had a comment on it on Facebook uh, saying that why the monarchy is important because it, it really um, gives us a thing to strive for. That they are held to these high standards of like of living because it gives um people like this is what virtue looks like because when it's done well you have a saint 
you know, that's the whole point of that. And it, it, and when you don't have sainthood, when you don't have holiness, when holiness doesn't exist, what are your stories going to be about? Uh, I'll tell you exactly what they're going to be about. The the patron saints of the modern age, the the millionaire, billionaire, um, the entrepreneur, right? It's all that. It's the self-made but, man but has but come like, back. But, but even... But think but, about all of those people who are like... What do billionaires do before breakfast? I mean, there's a million. What books are billionaires? No, reading? but like even that though, we still want to see them suffer. Like this is the thing oh, yeah, you yeah, hear yeah. about on like, a yeah, lot yeah. of podcasts. Like people still talk about how I, um, I, I remember hearing this on the Nerdist a lot. Then they were like, "Why are we so obsessed with seeing people fall? Like, why do we want to? Why do we want to see? Like, why do like we love tabloids?" Why do we love gossip? Because we love seeing people fall. And it's almost like it's it's right. You, like, you know better than me kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, so I think in one sense it's um, – I think building people up, like getting to that point of being the rich billionaire or the rich whoever, it that's only like the first part. We Like we always kind of want that second part of then seeing them, yeah. you know, fall. I, I don't know because it just yeah. – um, like I, I mean, this is totally the sin nature in all of us, right? Like this is the the vileness that's in every human heart. And when we don't admit that that we like the gossip columns, we take delight in the suffering of celebrities. Like I do that. I uh, like I can't wait till someone takes, you know, some so and so rich person or politician, you know, especially one that I don't like, down a peg, right? I delight. In Taylor Marshall being publicly shamed. Like, yeah. I delight in that. That's totally. the ugliness. That's the ugliness that's inside you and me. And that's the ugliness that I think we spend so much of our time desperately not wanting to face. I don't want to face that, but one of the great things about our movies is they're supposed to show you your own ugliness. Like, there was a book called um, Ordinary Men. Have you ever heard of that book? I figured you would in your history obsession. Maybe. It's about the... Maybe. Okay, so uh, I want to say it was the Nazis or the communists. I think it was the Nazis. To, yeah, it was the Nazis. And they took men in their, like, 20s and 30s who were in um, uh, the police. They're ordinary men. They didn't come up in, like, Hitler youth or anything. They weren't indoctrinated from a young age. Ordinary men. And they took these police officers, and they took them out to Poland, and they trained them... Uh, more paramilitary type stuff, if I remember. And they were like policing certain areas in Poland. And one of the things that they would do, like uh, they were just describing this, they would have uh, take pregnant women out into the forest and just shoot them in the back of the head. And it's like, how do you get to that place when you're a normal, lower middle income class, normal guy, you didn't grow up with a fetish of, you know, you didn't hurt animals and all that stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like the yep. typical antisocial behavior. Yep. yep. How do you get there? And that's the thing that people don't see is we're all capable of getting there. In um what's his name's Gulag uh Archipelago uh Sultanitsan. He talked about watching these people and it's like there were some people, like most of the most of the gulags were run by the prisoners, just like a lot of Nazi concentration camps were actually run within, like the daily stuff or the hourly stuff was actually run by. Um, I can't remember the name of the the Jewish group, but those Jews were brutal to other Jews, 
And they were brutal, right? But that's the environment, the social environment that they kind of put them in. And the question is, how do normal people get that bad? And in uh, Gulag uh, Archipelago, he talks about how um, everyone, everyone, in order to, if you survived, you did something dirty, right? You, you, no one came away unstained. He said, but it was after a while he began noticing, like, everyone stole bread from other people. Or Victor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, I think, talks about uh, you would change the number on, like, who's going to go off to the gas chamber tomorrow. And you would, like, your name is up for tomorrow. And you would erase it and put someone else's name just to give yourself another day. And he's like, everyone's hands were dirty. He said, but there were a handful of people that were the extreme exception." And it inspired both Man's Search for Meaning, which was in a Nazi concentration camp, and uh, the Gulag uh, Archipelago, where it is in a you know a Soviet um, concentration camp. And they talk about this experience of seeing people who ref- who refuse to compromise their moral identity, and they would rather starve to death than steal bread. And those were the people who actually thrived in an extreme environment of suffering. And it, it, it is so shocking to see, like, the ordinary man might not kill someone, but they'll steal in order to survive, and they'll put someone else in a bad place in order to survive. But these rare people are not the ones that, you know, like, we think the rare people are going to become the sociopaths. And he's like, but you're put in an extreme environment where it's like, literally, you were someone else. Most of us choose someone else to suffer. I mean, I choose you to suffer 10 times out of 10. Yeah, no, I, you I, give me a red button right here that electrocutes your testicles, <laughs> Luke, I am pushing that button. And not one of those fun things. And <laughs> <laughs> there was more there. There no, was so much more. <laughs> but there's there a live more. stream that won't get edited out. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a real, like, um, the darkness within, man, it, it, it uh, yeah. it's... Probably any priest could tell you it's there within all of us. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone decides they want to be a murderer. You know? And I, 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 for the most part, it's probably when it does happen, there's a way in our minds that we justify it really, really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, um, I don't really have any, that's, 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 that was good. Good job. Well, See, Jor- there, we, there we go. We're good. We're fine. <laughs> well, Jordan, Jordan Peterson talked a, a little bit about, like, how the Judeo-Christian ethic is is perfect. Like, he thinks, like, the escalation in school shooting comes as a direct result of abandoning the moral, eth- the like, the ethics that come with Judeo-Christian values. Because he says, just think about Christianity, right? The whole essence of Christianity revolves around acknowledging your sinfulness and confronting it with the grace, with like God took your sin, and that's where your redemption is. It's not that you have no sin or you've hid your sin. It's that you acknowledge your sin and you hand your sin over to one who freely and innocently takes it for you. And he said, um, or he's like, look at the story of the Jews in the Old Testament. How many times do they experience you know loss in battle, famines, plagues, devastations, whatever it might be? And what do they do? They don't blame the world. They blame themselves. They repent, and then they change. And he said, when you start to apply that logic to yourself, you're all capable of uh, Moloch worship. You're all capable capable of uh, you know bending the knee to the balls, right? Um, what is going to stop us from doing that? 
Well, it's acknowledging that I am capable of this idolatry, of this barbarism, of this, you know, like whatever it might be. I am totally capable of doing it. Okay. I've acknowledged that I'm capable of doing it. Maybe I've acknowledged how I've done it. And then the idea of repentance isn't I'm going to blame the universe and my problems and situations. I'm going to take radical personal responsibility for it. And he said that's the difference that Judeo-Christian ethic gives a culture is it gives you the tools to face like the deepest ugliness first within yourself and then to take a radical ownership of that ugliness and then say and now no further, right? That redemptive moment is the repenting moment and he's just talking about it from a a moral perspective like a psychoanalytical perspective of how that unfolds within a culture right if you have a bunch of people that believe that you can say the worst thing you've ever done to a man and he won't say i hate you i despise you and get the hell out of here but he says i absolve you of your sins you fundamentally change the very fabric of that culture it might just take a long time to work itself into the psyches of people but then what happens you get an arrogant people who presume upon mercy and then they think they can do whatever they want. And then they actually live an anti-nomian and anti-law lifestyle. Sucker. I do think there is a danger of viewing it just as this individualist. And I'm, and I'm yeah. not saying that this is what you're saying. But this um, this is like my one critique of Jordan Peterson that I have. I mean, I have a few, but and I like a lot of what he I like a lot of what he does. I'm just saying this is is that there's this it's still this like individual thing as opposed to this realization that like okay, so if I need to overcome my sin and if I need to overcome like if I need to embrace the darkness, sorry, embrace like no, like but embrace yeah, that, like, no, that's like, what he like, would say. Embrace yeah, that's exactly the what darkness. He would say. And understand that there is that re- redemption change is possible. It is not a thing I do on my own. It, it inherently involves communion with other people. Like yeah. there's this thing that I, I there, there was this priest, and I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm not saying that you're not saying this was what he's saying, but I just want to point point yeah. this out that. Um, there's a priest that I know who said, you know, we're not called to have a personal relationship with Christ. Every That's easy. We're called to communion. That's easy. That's easy. Like, we're called to, like, a deep right. communion with him and with others. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, you know, it's, it's easy to, like, feel like, like, like you know, pray to him or whatever. But, like, something that, like, that demands a thing out of us. You know, like, a deep, a, and um, you inherently have to, like... Like so, okay. So this is why I don't like the whole thing about, and I, I get the point of it, but I don't like the whole story of like Christ would still die for you if you were the only person on Earth. Okay. Okay. Because and I, I, I I'm, it's, it's, and it's I'm not that I don't like it, but I'm like and inherently, there. I get the idea. The idea is that like you. You matter, but I feel like it's that's like this whole like uniqueness of like. Uh, this uh, like I'm a you and me uh, myself and I is still tied into this like enlightenment postmodern thing of that's the only thing that I can control is this, and so that's the only thing that I should really try t- to focus on is my is myself, and we like within Christianity like we believe in okay so we were having this conversation oh with Matt Frat about this like um, the church. Like how you know it's easy to paint our like to like to like turn ourselves into an idol to or replace God 
right? But then how easy is it to actually turn ourselves or others into the church to make an, to like, like replace the church with some, with some idol. And because, because of how we're wired in terms of our culture, it's all, it's like all about the self. And we're, it's so hard to understand that like my sin hurts you or my sin hurts my wife or my sin hurts, it hurts my mom and it hurts my sisters. It hurt my dad. Like there, there are, there are consequences to it beyond myself that I think is really difficult to uh, try to grasp and understand. And part of and part of my um, salvation depends upon communion with the Lord and others. Does that make sense? Am I totally off? Well, no, let me just say this. Like the, the reason why you, someone would use the phrase, Jesus Christ would die for you, even if you were the only person who ever existed is because you're trying to combat a very specific thing, which is Jesus and the death of Christ and all that are nothing but doctrines that are abstractions. It's not something that was for me. It was something that happened once, once upon a time. It's mythical language. It's fairy tale language. It's it's a thing a long, long time ago in a in a country far, far away. Um, this man named Jesus died on a cross, you know, for the sins of the world, right? And and uh, what is that phrase? The world is too big. Okay, then make it small, right? That comes from <clears throat> the first Superman movie uh, when the little boy <laughs> is freaking out because he can't turn his powers off and he doesn't understand. He's like, the world is too big, mommy. And she's like, then make it small. Focus on just my voice. Um, and I'm going to tell you, that little thing helped with my daughter's anxiety when she was in the middle of a panic attack. Um, so the idea is you're combating people who are, you know, cradle Catholics who yeah, no, I have get it. heard it. No, no, no. But that's yeah. why you say it. And that's, I believe it was Kierkegaard that first coined that, that like kind of concept who also was an existentialist and, and an individualist. But you're right. Like there, there is no other path of salvation than union with Christ Jesus. There is no other path to salvation other than that. And that union is everything that you are as a person is related to him. So your sexuality, your income, uh, your vices, your fears, your family of origin, your baggage, the tub of ice cream you ate when that girl broke up with you. Like all of the things. She just stopped returning my text messages, but whatever. (laughs) <laughs> oh, she like just we, ghosted you. She ghosted, she ghosted you me. And yeah, Damn. we were like, yeah, it was it was getting so serious, and then she <laughs> ghosted me, and I don't even remember her name anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry, whoever you are, you were very nice. I hope you're happy. <laughs> In hell, no, no uh, she was very nice. I don't remember her name though. <laughs> it could have gone places. Um, no, but like that. One of the things that I run into all the time is Catholicism as the ritual, right? Like just the, the habitual thing. And I'm used to it, the nostalgic attachment to the ritual that I've always done, even if it's the hokiest Novus Ordo or the most austere, um, tridenting mass, like you can be attached to it and use it as a thing, an idol, a fetish, um, you know, whatever it might be. And you can fetishize these things or idolize these things. Um, and that's why you, it can never replace, right? Even, even Sunday mass attendance, cannot replace that core communion you have with Christ Jesus. As Catholics, we believe we get that core relationship that with Christ is, Jesus is the through the sacraments. Yeah. 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 But also but not only through the sacraments, because those sacraments presuppose one other thing. 
with which is my faith in Jesus. I don't go to baptism and get baptized if I have no faith in Jesus. So there has to be a pre-existing entrustment of your soul, which is why you go to baptism, because you believe that Jesus died for me, so I need to be inserted into the mystery of Christ through the death of baptism, right? So if I'm joined with him in a death like his, I'll be united with him in a resurrection like it. But don't you think that like a lot of it tends to be always about like myself and Jesus? Yeah, but I think there's an element where that's okay. Okay, and I think fair, there's an fair. element where that's yeah. unhealthy. Like the me yeah. and Jesus as religion is always an American lie. Like that is a lie, and the reason why it's a lie is it's it's the lie of it's actually super pagan in its core because like the ancient Romans, for instance, they believed if I was right with the deities, especially the one that I've adopted. Um, in the movie Risen, me and my wife watched it on Easter, Easter Sunday. You know, Sony Pictures made this movie about a soldier trying to find the body of Jesus to reproduce it, to shut down this new Galilean movement or whatever. And so it follows this Roman soldier around who's desperate to try to find this body, and then he finds the risen Lord, right? But um, throughout that... (laughs) Joke's on you! Uh, But throughout it, there's there's this little scene where he stands in front of the niche out on his outer wall, and there's these little idols. And then he's having a conversation with one of his um, lieutenants. Oh, Uh, it's it's 10 o'clock. 10 on o'clock, dot, my lights have gone out. Cruising. I, th- I think that's the song I sing every time. Probably. Um, so he says, like, oh, what God do you, you know, what's your, you know, go? basically it's like, what's your go-to God? Oh, it's, you know, Mars, mine's this. And it's funny because um, that's how idolatry, like, manifests itself is specifically in taking a good thing and making it everything. But Jesus alone is our everything. So when when we talk about that me and Jesus in the correct way, my thing would be like Jesus said, right, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like uh, St. Paul in Galatians says he loved – like this is like so intimate. If you want to like get into scripture, I recommend reading Galatians because St. Paul is unhinged and pissed off and emotional the entire time. In fact, he ends it by saying, look at my, what big letters I'm writing, like whatever that means in that, in that time frame. But he's just pissed for the first two chapters. And then he's amazing. Like, I mean, at one point he tells him, I wish those who would want to circumcise you would go mutilate themselves. I love that. Um, but he has this line in there where he says, and he loved me because Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's the healthy notion to understand that like, what did Jesus do? Jesus took my sin. That's what, because oftentimes I find Catholics, especially older Catholics, and let's be honest, most of the work I do is with baby boomers who come to parish missions. Most of them will come and tell me, I had no idea he loved me, right? At the end, I had no idea he loved me. I knew he loved the world, for God so loved the world, but I had no idea he loved me. And that's the healthy version of the quote-unquote me and Jesus. Yeah, no, no. That's fair. I do think that there is this element of, um, like, just, uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think that, uh, that oh, that's a good point. And I do think there, there's some stuff where you were talking about, going back to Jordan Peterson. There's a, I, I think it's more of a surface-level reading of him that it's just like, oh, if I can just deal with your psychology, then everything will be fine. Like, grin and bear it and get over it. But he, um, I was listening to a couple talks that he was giving because I was listening to something else and his thing got auto-generated into it, you know, from the YouTube algorithm. And he was saying something that I thought was really powerful. He was, 
talking about, well, what comes first? Is it the social sin? And he was using the word sin, or is it the individual sin? And he said, well, what you find is, and he was citing some very specific studies, is if you're in a, a toxic environment, the individuals that change the, or the, the way that social sin kind of gets changed is by those very minority heroic individuals who are willing to lay down everything for something better. Right. And so it's that notion of like, uh, like, uh, like the Nazi Germany, you know, concentration camp, who is actually going to make that concentration camp experience better. It's not going to be the Nazis. They're creating an evil. It's not the, uh, the prisoners who are going to get, you know, extra bread at tonight's dinner if they're vicious and keep everyone in line, their fellow inmates. It's the person who self-sacrifices, right? And then they will actually change because they shame people by their goodness. And you have one or two reactions. You feel shame and embarrassed and you want to change to be better or you kill that person, right? Like you can't have it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're in a place where your evilness is on full amplification, the person who faces the same situation as you yet caves in, you despise that person or you're ashamed of yourself. The shame of yourself should happen because you realize, oh, this person was faced with it and where I failed, they came in. And then it should make you feel shame and embarrassment and then say, what, what do they have? What are they doing? How did they do? And they, they're, that should inspire you to betterness. I wonder if that's what Pope Paul VI is talking about when he's referring to the power of witnesses, how, how that's what modern man pays attention to uh, um, more than teachers. Because there's something about a witness that you, like, it, yeah. it's, it's like you, you, you can't deny it. Yeah. You can, tr- you can, tr- you can rationalize it. You can um, ignore it. You can... Um, Dread it. Run from it. Destiny still arrives. But it's it, it has to almost be, like, it has to be reckoned. It has to be, like, you have to do something about it. Yeah. You, you know, like, yeah. there isn't anything else that you can do, but you, because it, it's just, it's so overwhelming that yeah. it just... Uh, it like does something in you where like again you could either ignore it you could try to try, you know like we could you know i think certain people try to rationalize and go oh well you know he had an affair that's fine for him, him this is you that, know, yeah. yeah yeah but just and that's you know and whatever like keep this at arm's length i don't want to have to deal with this yeah interesting um i have i have and another this, oh, sorry let me just and 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 this discussion with this one thing this is why it's so stupid for protestants who have gotten rid of the book of wisdom it is so stupid. It is dumb to get rid of this book. Number one, wisdom, in my, in my view, is the philosophy that undergirds the letter to the Romans. However, there, wisdom chapter two, I read it almost every Good Friday, except I forgot to read it today. But there's Idiot. this whole... Th- <laughs> center, center, saved by grace. And the, the <laughs> subsection, it Shame. actually starts at the... <laughs> it starts in chapter one, verse 16. It's called the, sub, the little subtitle that... Um, that the RSV gives it is life as the ungodly see it. And then it has this great thing where, you know, that phrase gather ye roads buds while ye may right? like, cause we're all going to die anyway. Oh uh, yes. Shortens, that one. And all, you, you see the dead poet society, right? He, that's one of the poems he's always going, Oh, captain, my captain. I've actually never seen that. I've never seen that dead poet society. That is my ghostbusters one. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you get depressed and go watch that movie deal. 
Oh, Captain, my Captain. But he has this, you know, yeah, like the, I, I there's know a famous that. poem. I remember that, yeah. There's a famous poem where they, you know, the I can't believe I can't remember the poem, but he's saying, gather ye rose buds while ye may. And he's talking about deflowering the virgin and all this stuff. Gather ye rose buds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That cease the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. And, um, I mean, they almost literally, it's almost a straight quote for that. But then there's this line where they says, let us lie and wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our own training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. And this is the part that I thought was so powerful. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base. He avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last unto the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Let us see if his words are true. Let us put him, put him to the test. And so they insult him, they torture him, and eventually they murder him to see, okay, where's your God now, right? And that, I think, is the fundamental... That's why um, that quote from Nietzsche is so, I think, important. Most people aren't good. They're just cowards. They're just afraid to do evil. And Jordan Peterson's whole thing with, like, understanding, like, these passive-aggressive men are... And this is where I think me and you, like, overlap in a hardcore way with this podcast, is passive-aggressive men are the most dangerous men. He said, because the aggressive men who are strong, who have learned to integrate that aggression within themselves into a holistic and civilized way, like, you know, like the, you know, like soldiers who don't get in bar fights and stuff, who can contain their aggression. He said, those are not the men who will punch you in the mouth. Those are the men who will stab you in the back. And he said, those are the men that are most to be feared, are the, uh, are the, the people who fear powerless. And, you know, they're constantly agitated. They're they look good on the outside because they're non-threatening. He said, but non-threatening is not the same thing as moral goodness. And we're trying to make men non-threatening instead of letting them keep their strength but be good. Like we've totally silenced that nobility uh, side of virtue. And so by doing that, we've enabled, we've unleashed the id of American male adolescence. You know, the guy in Charleston with his car, you know, the kid in Connecticut killing kindergartners, you know, all these school shootings and stuff. What, what is that? Like, why would a kid ever do that to fellow high school students? And then Jordan Peterson's line is, well, they wrote why they did it. They believe that they were in judgment of life itself. Like, they, they, they found this world intolerable, so they were going to kill everyone that they possibly could. And so it just, it's, it's so shocking that... Um, that we constantly ebb between, like, I know I have this evilness in me, and if I don't address it, and if I pretend it's not there, everything's going to be fine, and it gets so much worse. So, so much worse. Well, and that's the thing about um, the hardest part of sin is that it just makes hard, like it makes things worse. Yeah. You know, it just, um, there's this line of, uh, from there's 
a line, but there's this one part of um, the Catholic stuff, um, you should know, podcast where they're talking about when they first go into the Anima Technica vac, vac, uh, Vacua, and they're t- t- talking about old people that are dying, and they know that they have lived their like whole lives in that and how scared they are. Oh. And they see that oh. fear, they just don't have any sense of like, and it's just that, where, it, where our sin can bring us to the point that we have no concept, no concept of God. Like that we can't like it's, and that's like you know that's why I I feel I I see it all the time when I go to you know IO nine or something or just other sites yeah. like that that are so, and I don't mean this in that like I just mean as in they are like left wing in the sense that they are these left wing people who are, are atheists like that's kind of their right. and like outright they will say I'm a left wing atheist this yeah. and it, it's, yeah, yeah. and you've got this <laughs> on the right as well but. It um, there's like this disdain for God, or the especially Christianity, and I think yeah. it's partially due to their sin. Oh yeah, because they just make, because you know, like even though I think they're they are they are good people trying to do good things who have good hearts that I probably would like being around. When you don't have anywhere to go with your sin. It just and you start to revile a religion. It plays off of that, and it just makes it more like when like do most Catholics not want to go to mass or not want to have to be? It's, it's it can be when they're now. It's not true all all of all the time, but quite often it's because they're entrenched in some you know hidden sin. Yeah, yeah, and they and, and it just it actually makes it. Like, you can't, like, this is why getting um, healing from porn and, and, you know, like, and just like our general culture, our pornified um, culture is so important because if you don't have a pure heart, you are not going to be able to see God. Yeah. It is not going to be, you are, so what's like, and then what else can you do but be angry at him and hate him because of that? Yeah. Yeah, so what you just did was kind of walk uh, like sideways into this guy named Rene Girard and his view of heard about um, it. Yeah, his view. I mean, a lot of people will talk about it, but uh, we'll look at it from a. Um, he looks at the Gospels from this kind of like a, I, don't, I don't think it would be a psychoanalytic, but like a sociological way of like everybody needs a scapegoat. And when communities are falling apart, they look for someone to blame. The Jews, the gypsies, the Mexicans. You know, when things aren't good, they're looking for some. And it's always the powerless, right? Because you have to, you have to sacrificially kill them in order to make everything else better. And we're always looking for scapegoats. And part of the brilliance of the Old Testament was there was literally an offering called the scapegoat in Yom Kippur that you would put all of your sins on of the, of the people and then send that goat out into the wilderness. And the idea was that Jesus was almost this cosmic scapegoat, right? Like there was something fundamentally wrong. But the problem with the scapegoat mentality outside of the death and resurrection of Christ is it's not the thing that's actually the wrong thing. It's only a temporary stopgap because the rottenness and evil is still in me. Even after I projected it onto this powerless party and destroyed them. And I find this at all, like people are constantly looking for scapegoats. Yep. Constantly. And I bet you, I bet you right now, if you're sitting at home and you're hearing this, I want you to think about just the dumbest problem that happened at work recently and look for the scapegoat. 
Yeah. Look for the well, you know who's faulted, and look for the person who scapegoats because I'm guilty of it, and then look for the person who takes ownership, and look at the difference between those two people. Well, well, oh, you know who did it? Mark down in accounting. He didn't do blah 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 blah. Well, I never got the thing on time, and that's why this. Well, blah blah blah, and then someone being like, "Yeah, that was my fault. I'm sorry. Like I totally dropped the ball." Those are two totally different classes of human beings. So, masses are canceled almost everywhere. That's awesome. It's a period of self-quarantine. That's awesome. It's really not. And your parishioners, if, if you work at a parish, which a lot of you do, why did you do that? So, your parishioners are going to congregate somewhere, and they are already gathering on your parish's Facebook page. Catholic Social Media took, took a look at their subscribing parishes, and here's what they saw. Last week, so this is in real time, last week, 834% rise in people I'm looking at parish Facebook pages. That's insane. 162% increase in how many people those parishes were reaching. That's insane. A 402% increase in people liking, clicking, and sharing content from those parishes. I'm amazed people saw things from parishes that, that, that they wanted to share. That's incredible. You need to be posting and engaging your parishioners online like yesterday. Catholic on social media can help with unbranded, gorgeous posts on the ugly crap that you're putting out there because you don't have enough time to do that. And you probably aren't trained how to do that, and that's not your fault. So what Catholic on social media can do is help you with unbranded, gorgeous posts that connect to what's going on in the, in the world right now. It will help you keep Keep community alive, help you take prayer requests, and serve as your daily post structure on which you can do your live streams, your outreach, and so on. <laughs> this is awesome. Use the code Gomer was wrong. That's Gomer was wrong to get four weeks of free content and the help of a world class team at Catholic Social Media. Let me just repeat this one more time. Gomer was wrong to get four weeks of free content and the help of a world class team at Catholic Social Media. Again, one more time for the old people in, in the back, and God bless you all. You are in our thoughts and prayers. Gomer was wrong to get four weeks of free content and the help of a world class team at Catholic Social Media. Thank you once again to, to Catholic on the social media. Media for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes, which is kind of a cluster, but we're working on it. I witnessed this, and this is the thing that I talked about on the B side that I did with uh, this former MLS yeah. uh, player about, gosh, now maybe two and a half years ago, where we talked about like when the U.S. didn't um, qualify for the World Cup, there were like in the in all of the local. MLS games af- after that that were played by these two guys on this like uh, same team who were kind of like the main guys of that team they were booed endlessly in fact oh, when really? they when they played when their team played Atlanta the fans out and Atlanta had this um sign called the biggest losers and they put their faces on there it was um Josie out the door and Michael and like um, Michael Bradley and P- they Boo! I mean, just mercilessly every game they played, boos beyond. I mean, and it, it's it, it's like we are ingrained. We just we have to do something with our pain. So from mimetic triangular desire tends to come conflict. What this leads to is what Girard called the scapegoating mechanism. He found this too in the great literary masters. What's the scapegoating mechanism? When I say mechanism, I imply with him it's largely unconscious. Not something that we're consciously aware of. I tend to find someone or some group to blame. I'll say he's responsible, she's responsible, or they're responsible for the, the struggles that we're having. And I often find someone a little bit different 
strange looking, strange sounding from a different place or something. And I will project onto that person all of the struggle that's caused by mimetic triangular desire. And in the process, what happens is we do come together in a sort of ersatz piece. So as, as together we blame this third party, we at least for a moment experience a rush of solidarity and a rush of, um, of peace. There's the scapegoating mechanism. Uh, watch uh, this dynamic everywhere once you see it. Uh, I remember when I was going in through grad school, I heard this uh, phrase for the first time that the only thing that two academics can agree on is how poor the work of a third academic is. And when there's is pain and when there and and like and like uh, when we suffer, we just and like we're not we are incapable of just not doing anything. Like like like, like we we yeah. have to we have to we have do to something. do something. We have to do something with, with it. Yeah. You either have to offer it up or you have to um, unite it with another thing or you, you know you've got to do something with it because it will destroy, you know. Someone has to die. Yeah, no, like uh, 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 I'm like neither can live while the other survives. I'm on a Harry Potter kick. Um, and there is a real kind of gemütlichkeit, the Germans call it, a fellow feeling that happens when we come together to blame uh, a third party. That's the scapegoating mechanism. Now, on the grandest and most nefarious scale, look to Hitler, who at a time when Germany was marked by all kinds of interior tensions, effectively exploited the scapegoating mechanism to say, well, who's responsible? For our economic struggles, our cultural struggles, our political, our military struggles, it's the Jews. The Jews who stabbed us in the back, the Jews who undermined us during World War I, etc. And so what did he do is he created an extraordinary fellow feeling among his uh, fellow Germans by exploiting precisely the scapegoating mechanism. Now, one more step. Precisely because it has this effect of bringing us together and seemingly solving the problem, the scapegoating mechanism in our literature and mythology tends to be sacralized. We tend to say it's a good thing, and God or the gods smile upon it. Scapegoating, uh, which has been sacralized by a community to produce uh, peace. Press it further now. Girard says in most of the myths of the world, across the cultures, across the centuries, what you'll find is precisely the sacralization of violence, sacred violence. I love it so much, so much. Well, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, so much. think about him, right? Think about the character Harry Potter. What was the line that Jordan Peterson used when a woman becomes a woman who, uh, shoot, what, what was her job before she was an author? I have no idea. I think she may she have like, been a like a waitress or something. I don't know for yeah, sure. Yeah, he's like so. But we'll just say waitress. He's like when a woman goes from being a waitress to richer than the queen in the span of a couple of years, you should take notice because the stories this woman is writing is hitting the human heart in a deep way. So he read all the Harry Potter books, watched all the movies, and reread all the books and. Uh, and this is all in the same video. <laughs> I just watched this video right before we started. Um, but he was saying, yeah, he was saying the reason why the Harry Potter character uh, is appealing, even as the littlest child all through the movies. And this was the number one critique of it from Christian reviewers that now. Yeah, I love your I love your hair. He said, Harry Potter, number one, Harry Potter has evil in him. Oh, like yeah. he's got the yeah. he's got the mark on his forehead. He's got a little bit of uh, Voldemort in him. 
right? And uh, the whole idea is that's why he can hear snakes and talk to snakes, you know, all that whole thing. There's this element of evil in him. There's an element of, like, the wild chaotic. And then at the same time, all of Harry's friends, so this is the beyond just me, beyond just the individual, he needs his friends to both push him forward and to, you know, egg him on from the back, right, to, 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 to do this thing as a group. And what do they do? Well, they break rules all the time, don't they? I mean, they're constantly breaking the small rules because they're trying to save lives. And he said the goody two-shoes, the passive-aggressive, would never be the Harry Potter or the Harry Potter friend. Because, number one, he won't be the Harry Potter because he can't admit, he can't look into the mirror and see the darkness in him. And because he can't see the darkness inside of him and he just glosses it over with, I'm a nice guy, he'll never be able to integrate the darkness like Harry does. And he said, and then on top of that, he can't see himself as losing the nice guy status by breaking the rules. You know, even if they're arbitrary rules or this is the one exception to those rules that anyone would be like, yeah, that's total. It, it, it would kill him to do that. And yet this person harbors rage and repression and all this stuff and guilt for not being noble and all this stuff. So he uses that as the very uh, as Harry Potter as the very kind of thing that pushes it forward, like that narrative of like, yeah, we do have the darkness in us, but that darkness, when integrated, becomes greatness. When succumbed to, becomes sin. Yeah, that's why um, Catholics who don't like Harry Potter are stupid. Uh, You know who loves Harry Potter? Brandon frickin' Vought. That guy loves Harry Potter. Did a whole series on it. A whole web series. I didn't watch it. <laughs> uh, Not because I didn't want to. I, I just I haven't read the books yet. I'm going to read the Harry good. Potter books. They're good. I've you been own listening them? to them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know where they are, but I've uh, I've got them. No, I, but, but <laughs> they're I, sweating I, in the I've shelf. Got, behind yeah, seriously, you. I've got. I, I am starting <laughs> with book one, and I'm uh, so the um, binge mode podcast has a thing that they did in between the Game of Thrones seasons, where they like um, went through all of the chapters of like all the books and um, and. And each movie and analyze them. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, it's really good. So I'm gonna go. I'm, so I'm, I've started. I'm about five chapters. I've I'm done with the first five uh, chapters of the of the first book. He saw all of that in the great literary masters. He saw it repeated culturally and all of it. And then he read the Bible, and the Bible, which you know he had been raised a Catholic, but had kind of fallen away from the practice of the faith. The Bible took his breath away. Now, why? Because he saw that the Bible knew all of this. The Bible knew all these dynamics. Everything in Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, and Proust. Of course, they, they learned it from their Christian tradition. Uh, it was in the Bible. But the Bible had something else. The Bible had something new. Because the Bible unmasked the identification between the gods and the scapegoating mechanism. It unmasked the mythology of sacred violence. Because in the Christian telling, God is not on the side of the scapegoaters. God identifies with the scapegoated victim. So Jesus crucified is not God sanctioning violence, but God unmasking and revealing the dynamics of sacred violence. Think in the passion narratives of Caiaphas, right? Typical religious leader, Gerard would say, who says, look, wouldn't it be better for one person to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed? There it is. There's the scapegoating mechanism, typically sanctioned by a high religious figure. The fact that Caiaphas is at cross purposes to the God of Israel, the true God, 
That's a revelation, right? That's an apocalypse. That just means taking the veil away. Something's been pulled away, like the Wizard of Oz, pulling the veil and revealing what's really going on. Girard thinks that's what happens in Christianity and why it alone functions as a true revelation. And it's funny that you bring that up because within that book, like the whole, like the whole duality of Harry is there in the very beginning. Like the fact that, like you know, um, like what like Dumbledore does with with Harry might not actually have been the right call. Now there are what, things what that it do? does. Um, he. Um, he basically you know there is a reason why he does it. It's because of and I don't well, I don't know, I mean who the heck if you haven't read Harry Potter, sorry everyone. I'm going to spoil like some big some big some big stuff here. Yikes! So major Harry Potter spoilers here. Like this is your chance. <laughs> Skip ahead like five minutes. I'm I'm I'm, I'm about to go deep you're, here. You're coming. You're coming at us. Okay. So um, why doesn't Harry Potter die when he's when he's a baby? It's because his like his mother basically is able to create this uh, 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 like unmagical spell that protects Harry with her love. Yeah, and so he goes, and so like what like Dumbledore does is he takes Harry when he's a baby, and he um, gives them to his aunt and his like aunt and uncle who hate the magic world. They detest it. Like with they just want to be normal. They think that's what's important. It's being like as like I'm a normal as you can. And to now are they magical good. people? No, no, and they're just suppressing it. No, no, no. Okay. no. So they um they're muggles. Okay. And so, uh, but they're like awful, vile, and because they just they're obsessed yeah. with wanting to look good, and just keep, you know keeping up appearances, and um, they hate anything that they just they want to be closed off from the world and just care about having yeah. money and you know uh, and all they the just, things. They're just like I'm self obsessed. Yeah. So yeah. T- to the point where like the dad, when like he works, turns his back on his window. He doesn't want to see the outside world. And so um, that's why I put that big black curtain over exactly. my window. <laughs> so like when, but by like basically by, and he gives them to Harry because it will like, because they share his mother's blood, it will allow him to be protected while he's there. So her, her like charm for Harry to be saved, he will be safe there. Mm. At least that's what Dumbledore Alma thinks. Okay. And he's, and, and, but then he's told if you put him there, uh, like they're horrible people. They're going to be horrible to him. And he goes, yeah, but that might be better for him than like being with good, you know, and he like hides some stuff and he does you know, he, he doesn't, um, he's, he, he has like good intentions, but sometimes his good and his good intentions like don't really work out. And it's kind hey, of, it's like, it's like Dumbledore, also known as Gandalf, said, not even the wise can see all ends. He's not known as Gandalf. He's totally different than Gandalf. I, yes, he is. He's totally different than Gandalf. <laughs> like, it's so pissed. He's very different. He's, he's more nuanced than um, Gandalf, which I would well, not, sorry, that, that is the wrong way to put it. Gandalf is like a wise wizard, right? Who has this incredible yeah. backstory, who has all these, all these yeah. crazy things. He's that not he's even done. human. Yeah, but yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> Dumbledore's a flawed human being. Yeah. Like he's ap- and his and like his flaws are there up until like book 6. Like he's a yeah. flawed human being. And he even admits that at the you know and so it's um yeah, you have to and going back to I think what is like the overall the theme of the, what what is the point of of 
this episode, you have to embrace that darkness and you and you like have to acknowledge it because if not, either like you just allow it. Like because this is, I think this is what the nice guy does by not acknowledging his darkness or trying to own it or trying to like work on it. It consumes him any anyways. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so like it's like you, it's, it's like you don't be like because you have the terrible privilege of being a human being, you can either run from the darkness and be consumed by it, which I think is what most people do. Most and that can take the form of a nice guy. It can take the form of being someone who cares but like hates God. It can take the form of like a, of you can um, have a CDL or all these other things, or you can fully embrace the dark, which is what a lot of people do as well. I think most people try to run from it and keep it at, at you know arm's length, or you can try to just like really understand understand that it's there. Try to like and you want to love almost like you want to love that part of yourself in a way that says I'm going to like and and start to follow Christ because or or not in Christ but like I'm I'm going to embrace all of this. And try to be better. Well, and that's what my priest, when I was in the middle of, you know, my struggle with porn and masturbation, all that stuff at Franciscan, he just said, there are two lepers, or there are two people. There's the leper, and there's the rich man on the high horse. The leper is your sin that you wallow in the dark that's decaying you from the inside out. But the rich man's an arrogant jerk. And even though he's noble and idealistic and aspirational in so many ways, he's still prideful. And the leper even though he's a disgusting wretch, he's humiliated by his own sin. Now, the most wonderful thing that could happen is if the rich man got off his high horse and embraced the leper. Then he could heal the leper of his leprosy, and the rich man could be healed of his arrogance with the, the, the leper's humility. And he said, that's, that's the story of Francis and the leper. That's the story of uh, like the prodigal son and the and the elder brother, like these two need to come together: the immoral sinner who repents and returns, and the righteous one who feels like I don't ever need to repent. You know, he one is lost in pride, and the other one is fearful of despair because of his sin. And it's only when the two are reconciled within us, because and that's in the shape of a cross, can we actually make progress in these areas? Because we have to trust. Like when I do my parish mission, the whole point of it is to get people to trust who God is so that on the second day they can hand God their worst sin ever. And this one priest said to me, so I have everyone like write down what what's that one thing. And I had this priest say to me, he said, listen, um, just so you know, I had people write down all these sins. And then a bunch of them went to confession. I heard their confessions. And he said, I had multiple people say to me, I have been to confession and communion a hundred times and never admitted this once, but I had an abortion, you know, 15 years ago, or I had an affair on my wife five years ago or whatever it might be. And the priest came to me and he was like, it was shocked. He was shocked that he heard that. And I said, because they don't trust God enough to give this stuff away. So you have to like, that's the part of evangelization. I think people don't understand is that notion of me and Jesus, Jesus dying for your sin. Like the idea is like, so you don't have to be held held back and defined by that sin anymore, but you have to at least acknowledge, which is what repentance is, that yeah, I did this thing. 
And Christianity gives you both. It gives you the security of knowing you can get rid of your sin, and it gives you the efficacy through baptism of actually freeing you from your sin. When you, right? I want to add something to this, and this yeah. might is, and I might be able to, um, I might be able to land this, but probably not. <laughs> um, there's this part, and I don't know like which book it's in. I think it's, I think it's Balthasar's last book. His epilogue, where he names the anima technica vac- vacua, and he compares it to the anima Christe humana, I think it is, which is that idea that like a culture that can like acknowledge that they have like a Christ shaped like yeah. hole in their heart. Almost that's the, like the most I'm a cliche way to ex- <laughs> to ex- explain it, but it's why you're able to go and like do a mission work at a at when you like have like a primitive culture that has a concept of the divine it's either it's easier to evangelize them than our our own than our like you know own culture and i wonder if part of it is like we the culture as a whole is the man on that horse and so consumed with his pride because we've killed god and this is all that we have and that we put such emphasis on the techne that we honest and like one of the, one of the things th- like that like Balthasar talks about. I don't want to be very I'm careful here because I am not an expert. Is he's, he's talking about the anima tech like technique of vacua? So basically, our like own culture. He says, "Is contact possible there?" I don't know. Like is so like everywhere you go, people talk about how evangelization now is so hard. We don't have mass conversions anymore it's a couple people at a time we we, and we repeat that over and over and over again we don't have these mass like conversions anymore you see it over the glen mary that's the thing that like they wanted to go during their when they first started back in the 30s part of their goal was to convert people there to like to catholicism because they want they they felt that by the time they hit the cities they were going to be lost. So let's try to like evangelize them there, and it just they fell flat on their face. They just like didn't and they kind of they didn't really stop trying to do that. But they they like understood like there's something going on here that is this is this is insanely hard. And I th- and I uh, and I think that's what Balthasar is trying to get at that our culture it is so like. We are so formed by that and our like world outlook and stuff that it shouldn't surprise us that people haven't really had a real confession in five years, 10 years, 25 years, because we've reduced Catholicism to a thing that we do. And so I'm not, it is impossible. Like you can't make contact there unless Christ breaks through it. Like you have to honestly have it shattered. And if you don't get to that point, you are never going to cross that barrier. It is impossible. Now, Christ can, but we can't. Yeah. So when you say we reduce Catholicism to something that we can do, what do you, what do you mean? Like, it, 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 what it, else is it? It becomes this, like, techne thing that it's, like, it's it, it the becomes, same reason. It becomes a technique rather Not than a, a way of it life becomes or a, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, a thing that I do. It's just this tool I use to help me think that I'm a good person to be affirmed in, in like what I think like morality is. It's my community. It's just it's just a thing that I do, but it's not where my life comes from. It's not where my whole being is found. It's just this thing that I do, and I love it, 
and I'm really good at it. But it's again, it's just this thing that I. So I'm not ever going to really find healing for all this stuff because I'm actually not entering into the sacraments in like a real, even I would you know dare to say the valid way. So they're not healing me. They're not able to like do because I'm I'm receiving them and like not in a state of grace. The whole my whole approach to it is flawed. It has it like you know has a fundamental flaw, and it's not so till, like the idea of going out and like Jesus says, if anyone hears these words of mine and does them, he's like a wise man to build his house on on rock. The idea of what you mean when you're saying does them is like treating them almost like a talisman or like an incantation in a magical ritual where I'm the one with the control and I'm doing these things in order for these results to happen yeah. as opposed to I am engaging in these practices because I my whole life is defined by Christ but it's like I'm using Christ to get my life is like the other way around like I'm engaging in the mass the the practice of even the you know the rosary the this the that I'm engaging in these techniques in order that I might have control. Yeah. Because even of the Godhead or whatever. Exactly. Because be. like try to remember being doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, yeah. so what we are, who we are and like where we come from, it doesn't matter to any of us. Like this is a thing that I actually wanted to talk about, but I, but I would like a table because, because I think um, this is yeah. good. Like half the movies that, exists right now about finding your own family and how family yeah. is who you choose not like no it's not like yeah. no it's not <laughs> now i firmly believe that like your friends can become like I'm, like we are such i mean you are i'm, I'm like your kids call me like alina like we're we're yeah. really close and i would consider we're you to practically be, like, spouses yeah we are pra- practically spouses. Spouses. i mean we share beds people we share beds <laughs> But Not like brothers on a hotel bed, like lovers, lovers. on a hotel yeah. bed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But without the, big the spoon. Fit. But like, and we have an incredible, I'm <laughs> a friendship, and like, like, and I, lo- and we will always have it. And uh, and like, same thing with John and Adam and all of our friends. You know, like we're all, yeah, like, but we're not family. Yeah. You know, and there's a difference there, and it can be hard. Like, what if you don't have a family? Like, you know, like, oh, what if your family sucks? And I'm like, I, I get it, but there is this thing that, like, like. I can never escape my sister. They will like all my sisters and like, I love them. They're, they're, they are like awesome. I can choose to not uh, uh, be friends with you and they would be effectively over, you yeah. know, and we could never talk and it would be, I mean, it would be fun. It would be like awful, but like it, like it's within our own. We can't like, I cannot change the fact that my sisters are my sisters. Yeah. That is yeah, forever yeah. going. You know, I always think back to like this thing that, um, Daniel Noonan talked talked about when we had her, and I hope I pronounced her like her her yeah. name right. But she had talked. To, I was really unmoved by 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 um this. She talked about how her dad was abusive towards her. Was that right? Or had a you know? And she yeah. still wanted to have a first dance with him at her wedding because that was her dad, or the, the yeah. like. Um, daddy and like that. Like you can't change yeah. who uh. your parents are. And I was so moved by that. And our culture completely rejects that yeah what's the line from pope francis the throwaway culture like you 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 have ceased to be useful to me be gone with you and so and, and we, we're not saying don't protect yourself no like, yeah no danielle and, and was adopted yeah she had a great family and I'm, but this was yeah and, and, and i'm also saying like one of the things that are really like i'm a, and i think this is true for myself as well 
and my sisters is we really bring our friends into our family. There's this real yeah. like and yeah. like I look, you know, on my dad, he had a terrible um, relationship with his family, but like what quite literally like what like saved his life was my godmother's was um her family. And they became yeah. like 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 um, my family. And they I mean they her mom quite um, literally saved my dad's life and he he was like suicidal as a teen because yeah. because he had such a terrible uh, relationship with his dad that um and she like was you know so but and so I am I I'm like it's I am not trying to say that that stuff is bad. What I am trying to say is that being matters, and we have no concept for it. And so, and why don't we have a concept for it? What's the ultimate heresy at the bottom of all of this? Uh, De- Descartes it precedes Nama. It precedes the Enlightenment. It precedes Descartes. It precedes. It goes even before the Reformation, but it is at the core of the Protestant Reformation. Nominalism. The- Nominalism, oh, what head is to that? toe. What there is are no essences, only names, nom- yeah. no men. It's, and names. so this, like, this whole, and when everything can be defined by what I do, then this doesn't being doesn't matter. And if and if like and if I choose to ignore that sin in my life, and hold and make and make the church this thing that I do, because again, there's no concept of being. Like it's so like that's why witness is so important because you can't deny that. Like I just I think that's I honestly think what what like um, Balthasar is talking about there is one of the most important things anyone has written in the past one hundred years because it it all of our challenges all of our issues are laid out right there and why we don't why people don't embrace the gospel it's right there. It's because like their their our, our approach to understanding it it is it is like fundamentally flawed. I just want to add this. I, I think the only way to really get around that is to say perhaps this is true and to be open to it and to like and and when you see someone who's a witness and it stirs your heart, you have to follow it. You can't. Um, rationalize it away you can't you just like like allow god to work and that's how he breaks through but if not it never like i think the majority of people's issues with with the church stem from this is that god is just this thing that this is why the taylor marshall i mean all this i think it's the same thing it's just a thing that i do and when like everyone being so upset and we, and we all do this. We all fall into this. Like this, we're, we're not immune um, from this. I'm. I do. I do this. This is my like main mode. You know, I, I I was actually caught out on this by like I think it was on Father Dave back in 2003, and I haven't gotten over it yet. So, <laughs> what what did he say? Or, or he was theory, like, "There's that? a per- so we were. Um, I think I told this before in here, but we were um, at a fop." And I was on the like, leadership team for the FOP out in Austria. <laughs> and he goes, There's like, there is like a person here who God is this thing. He's is this extracurricular oh, act, activity that you're really good at. And I was like, <laughs> ah, ah! Like, just like, it was like my heart was just like ripped open. And <laughs> the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, this isn't gonna be healed for years. <laughs> I can't wait to podcast about it and make that money off of it. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you who knew. Our good friends over at 
Catholic Social Dodd Media, Vagabond Missions, and that other one. I'm going to do this over again. <laughs> oh, the faith counseling. Yeah, man. Um, I, you know, this is a good thing to talk about. I need to I need to puzzle this stuff out uh, a lot more um, because my my big fear is that I'm forming adults into something that uh, in, into just American thing. And I'm reading that book, Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. It's an excellent book written by an ex Protestant who became a Roman Catholic priest, brilliant theologian, excellent writer, Louis Boyer. And I'm reading through it, and I'm like, holy crap, this is Andy Stanley. You know, like. These are all the Protestant pastors that I love, the teaching ones, the Reformed Church ones, the the Baptist ones, like all these things. But they all have these huge fundamental flaws where it becomes uh, a, like Andy Stanley's story is he eventually broke away his North Point Community Church from his dad's church. I think it was Second Baptist in Atlanta. He broke away and it destroyed their relationship for years. And uh, they talk about it. I mean, it's been restored now, but. The dad, the son thought he said, yeah, go take the church and do your own thing. The dad was like, no, I never wanted him to do that. I always wanted it to be a satellite campus of our church. And so they, they to this day, uh, and they both refuse to admit that the other person said what they said. But at the same time, and it caused this huge rift. But I, I remember thinking, the uh, there's this line from Louis Boyer where he says, um, when the in essentially, let me just paraphrase, but the inhospitality of having a preacher's or a theologian's authoritarian disposition on you within Protestantism, which is a nominalistic religion. He says it causes the rebellion to rise up, but the rebellion only succeeds if the rebel can go start another congregation where he imposes his authoritarian view. And it just replicates and replicates and replicates. And you open another down the street church and a small storefront, this and a that and a thing. And they all think, well, I'm perfecting on the norm of scripture. And they don't realize there's this inherent uh, rebellion and authoritarianism that they just oscillate between. Whereas in the, the Louis Boyer's whole contrast is there's no priest that like within the Catholic milieu, like, you you yoke yourself to the teaching of the church. And there's this definite understanding where, as an individual Catholic, I can hold priests and bishops accountable to the teaching of the church and not just, well, this is what my pastor says in my non-denom, you know? And so, um, I don't know, I found that to be super enlightening that there's this element of Americana that oscillates between rebellion and authoritarianism in the same person. It's so bizarre. So bizarre. It's that creative destruction loop we can't seem to get ourselves out of. Yeah, and I well, and kind of bringing back to what we were talking about earlier. I don't think you can bring yourself. I think it's so ingrained in our DNA that the only way to bring it out is through conversion, and that's the work of Jesus. There's nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do. Like, like I'm I'm so like that. Like I always want to rebel against the man or the system, and then just create it in my own image and likeness. It's why The Great Gatsby is such a fascinating <laughs> book to me, because that's what that is. Uh, it was very common within academe to see Christianity, if you took it seriously at all, as one more iteration of the great monomyth. Now look at someone like Joseph Campbell, you know, whom I revere in many ways. But Campbell, who studies the great myths of the world, you know, across the cultures, across time, and sees certain fundamental dynamics. What's Christianity? It's one more telling of the great myth. You know, the monomyth, the one great myth that's told over and over again. The one song that's sung in a thousand accents. 
What did Girard show us? <laughs> he showed us that, no, no, that's getting it backwards. Christianity is not one more iteration of the monomyth. Christianity is the deconstruction of the monomyth. It's an unveiling of the dynamics that the myths want to veil. And in that, he shows the uniqueness and indispensability of Christianity. To a time, to a culture that was becoming very skeptical of that, um, of that uniqueness. You see now why I think René Girard will be seen, perhaps one day, as a church father. Because at a time when a lot of academics wanted to defang and domesticate Christianity, he reclaimed it as something uniquely revelatory.